Today's episode is presented by Yelp. Yelp's mission is to connect people with great local businesses. They also offer great solutions for restaurants looking to streamline their front of house and increase sales. Millions of diners are already using Yelp, and these products are a great way to capitalize on that network. Head over to restaurants.yelp.com to claim your free page and learn more about these powerful tools for your business. Now here we go. I said the model is broken, and we should really start thinking about creating a platform that focuses around intellectual property and brands like we did in the hotel space. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the future of the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. The only way we're going to get through this is to get through it together. If I can help you in any way, don't hesitate to reach out. You can book a free call with me by going to joshcopel.com forward slash chat. Also, be sure to check out the Full Comp Restart Guide, packed with valuable resources and strategies from Yelp, Cornell University, and Oyster Sunday. Go to joshcopel.com forward slash resources for your free download. Didn't write that down? Don't worry, there are links to both in the show notes. Everyone has a different definition of success. But if we all had to pick just one, we'd probably pick Sam Nazarian's. His company, SBE, owns 36 hotels and over 200 culinary and nightlife venues globally. He's worked with everyone from Philippe Stark to Jose Andreas. And even in the midst of a global pandemic, he's expanding, opening citizens a 40,000 square foot eatery later this year. Sam has dominated every tier of hospitality for more than a decade, and today, he unpacks that winning strategy for us. We begin by discussing how an idea became a global empire. Well, I mean, I'd lie to you and say that there was a, a global you know, strategy back in 2002, um, you know, when I was you know, 26 years old, but I think you know, what, what I've always found, and even going back then, you know, when we saw the opportunity in the white space, you know, I, as you said, I was not a nightclub guy, not a restaurant guy, you know, not a hotel guy. The background was not there. But as a consumer and somebody who traveled the world um, at that stage and, and luckily putting myself around um, some amazing people. Right. And, and that was I was blessed enough to have the opportunity to kind of see some and study, more importantly, study people that I really found to be unbelievably awesome. I mean, the curiosity I had you know, was unbelievable. And I was, and I continue to be a very curious person and now we're pushing the envelope of why and why not. And a lot of that maybe comes from an immigrant background, you know, just coming here as an immigrant and, and trying to adjust or assimilate and, and trying to be, you know, as a 23, 24 year old, you know, somebody who wants to be relevant. But, you know, in that particular case, when, when we started the nightlife division, you know, which was buying coconut teaser and converting it with 300,000 bucks to shelter, the idea was and continues to be uh, you know, con- really putting ourselves around the consumer, which was me. You know, at that time, I was building something for myself. And that's sometimes I find to be really the, the, the best way to, to be successful is if you know what you want, you know, and you know what's missing, especially if you go to London or New York or Hong Kong or Milan, and you come back to L.A., which I did at that particular time. And there was such a discrepancy between what, what I saw around the world in design and in service, and in that particular case, not to get too theoretical, was just, you know, the, you know, the, the properties, the nightclubs, the, you know, you'd go to Ibiza or go to Miami Beach and come back, and L.A. was just such a sleepy town, both from a design perspective, from 
accountability and service, from bottle service to everything. And when we when we opened up the first club on Sunset, you know, as you said, there was there was a lot of nightclub owners that actually owned the nightclubs, and then they basically hand them over to the promoters. And whether it was Bolt House or Alliance or whoever the case was, and the promoters, you know, they really didn't get, really care. You know, I mean, they they were there to get a top line fee or the door or whatever the case was. And it wasn't about a continuity of experience. It wasn't about changing the game. It wasn't about being a word that wasn't around back then called disruptive or lifestyle, right? It was it was something just about how much money can I get and then I'll move on my night to the next guy's place. And our approach was very simple. I, I put up all the money myself and we put a team around. And the team we put around, at first, nobody would come promote for us because they said, what are these kind of Iranian guys? It's going to be Persian night and you know, all the stuff that I'm sure you remember. But we did it around the aesthetic. We did it around the content. You know, we, we brought in some really cool, you know, uh, layers of kind of this third dimensional of a really shitty little place on Sunset, which was, you know, falling apart. And it worked. And if it didn't work, we, we probably wouldn't be here talking about it. Um, but the fact that it did work and then quickly through success, you know, we, we started buying, you know, we bought the old gate on La Cienega, then we bought the old... Uh, lobby on uh, on Santa Monica, and then Little Hyde on Sunset, which you know really was the game changer. The Little Hyde that we opened in 2005, which was really the, from a from a PR perspective, the hottest club, even though it was only 1,500 square feet in the world for <laughs> four or five years. I mean, it was it was where TMZ started. It was it was really from an A list perspective. It was something that really catapulted catapulted us. But the vision was always. You know, in 2003, when I opened up the first nightclub, in 2004, I had bought my first hotel in Miami Beach. And ultimately, in 2006, we bought our first hotel in L.A. in Beverly Hills, which was now Celeste Beverly Hills. So and then we opened our first Katsuya, you know, which was a brand that we created with Philippe Stark and Chef Katsuya in 2005. So the idea was always, how can we be a part of a complete ecosystem? Um, and hotels was the perfect kind of accelerant, if you will, to be able to launch all these verticals, whether it's entertainment, nightlife, restaurants, and ultimately the hospitality piece. And that's what we did for the better part of you know the next 15 years. Was it a quick education for you or did you bring in experts <coughs> in these different verticals? Honestly, L.A. was not. And as you know this, because you, know, you operate here too, I mean, LA is not the hotbed for culinarians, for restaurateurs. I mean, it is now. And I'm very proud that we had a, a piece of that with the bazaar and, and really kind of validated the market. But back then, I mean, you had you had Nobu, you had Wolfgang, you know, you had Medeo, you had Giorgio Poldi, you had the Polo Club. I mean, there was a couple places that were institutions. Um, and getting people, that was my biggest issue, getting people to come to LA. And they're like, well, why would I go to LA? I'd go to New York. And, be part of a big hotel company or I go to, you know, even Las Vegas at that point started really booming in the third party uh, restaurants and management contracts and people would bypass LA and go from New York straight to Vegas or Miami, you know, same thing. So it, 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 a lot of it was just the people that we had around us, people that really could understand and hustle. And the first phase of that, I'd say from 2003 to 2008, before we opened SLS um, Beverly Hills, was a family, you know, and which kind of worked out. I mean, people that started with us as, as bar managers became GMs. The GMs became, you know, like, you know, leaders in our group. And we had, a, you know, we bought David, David Judakin's company in 2008. And we ended up having literally, I think, between 
the umamis and gladstones and staples center and you know all the, you know our first you know really kind of helping hollywood get off its feet in 2005 when we opened katsuya and the broadway building in hollywood and vine we had about 62 places in la and you know that started attracting people from la who wanted to come work with us and then ultimately mm-hmm. we started bringing people in from from other markets um but it wasn't an easy thing but la is a tough place to bring people because of just the fact of how expensive the quality of life here is um you know, people will go to Vegas and buy a nice house and be 15 minutes from the strip in LA. You know, if you want to bring somebody from Chicago or New York, you, you know, you, you pay them. If they're getting the same money there, you'd have to almost double their salary just, just to yeah. get them to come to work with you. So we made all the mistakes you can make. So, But it doesn't beg the question. So, you know, your family did well. And then you immediately from a young age did well. You, you did well with the cell phone business. Um, you know, managed your family's real estate assets, did incredibly well with that as well. Why hospitality? What about it resonates? Because Lord knows for most folks, it's a dumpster fire. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, honestly, you know, when I, I met, you know, I, I've had this question asked many, many times. I remember before I started SBE, we were partnering with a guy and a group that was uh, building a lot of apartment buildings in LA. And it was a real good opportunity back then. The SNL, you know, the SNL crisis has kind of stabilized it. And there was a little bit of design in, in the repurposing of some of these apartment buildings. And we met this lady named um, Kelly Wurstler um, in the late 90s. And she was this kind of up and coming designer, you know, with a great Southern accent, super smart um, and just charming and had a real completely different vision. And she did about 10 or 15 of our apartment buildings. And then we bought a hotel in Beverly Hills with a partner, um, Brad Corzin, you know, um, and we, we bought this beautiful hotel called the Avalon and Kelly designed it. And it was a disaster. I mean, we were like two years late, you know, over budget. I was like 23, 24. I was an you know, equity partner, but I, was, I started getting very passionate about it because it was like, I, I knew I loved real estate. I knew I loved development. I knew I loved construction. I knew I loved um, operations. And then when we opened the Viceroy in Santa Monica, which was our first big hotel prior to starting SBE, it all kind of came together. And it was like, it was like, uh, you know, going to Disneyland. It was like you had, you know, you had everything under the sun that kind of gave me these unbelievable ideas. It gave me all this energy. And, and we opened, you know, when we opened Viceroy Santa Monica, it wasn't like a seamless opening either. You know, with the city of Santa Monica, nothing seamless. But it really was a disruptor, and it created a new language in the hospitality space. You know, at that time, Schrager, Andre Belaz, you know, even you know, Pomerantz was opening some hotels. And for me, it was like, wow, you, know, you have real estate, you have the upside of appreciation of, of the asset, you have value creation, you have food and beverage, you have entertainment, beach clubs. And I was 24, 25, and I was obsessed. And but the one thing that was so blatantly clear after doing that as an equity partner for so for two or three years was there was absolutely zero accountability um, with the operators. You know, you had a restaurant tour come in, we built a restaurant for them, you know, and they just get a management fee and they, you know, they don't really care about you know, the hotel, you know, the, the ecosystem of the, of the property. You had a mm-hmm. hotel management company that just, you know, wants to try to get their fees. You had the developer who was trying to get, you know, his fees. You had the nightclub operator who was doing your pool. And there was literally in a hundred little hotel like the Viceroy in Santa Monica, we had five different groups sucking out fees from, an, from a return on investment. It wasn't great, but more importantly, from the customer experience, it was horrible. 
And, you know, at that time, you know, Schrager had just opened a hotel on Sunset called the Mondrian. And he had part partnered with, you know, Jeffrey Chatterow with Asia to Cuba. And he brought in the Gerber brothers and they did Sky Bar. And it was kind of similar, right? And it was this kind of broken up level of accountability. It worked well. And it works. It always works well for a period of time. Um, but what, what was hurting the most was really the the continuity to the to the consumer. Because a, a guy would come, a husband and wife would stay in the hotel, but they couldn't get into the bar because they weren't cool enough. And a group would come on Monday through Thursday, but they couldn't get a reservation at the restaurant. And that model was broken. So what, you know, early on with SBE, the idea was creating a platform that had all the verticals, that had all the credibility. As you know, you know, restaurants are different. The nightclubs, it's a different language than hotels. You know, could there be a business where you could actually have all these verticals and these languages being spoken by one group? And that's really what got me excited when we started SBE. Um, and the nightclubs, we just happened to be the first ones that took off. You started so young. You were in your early 20s. I think you were in your mid-20s the first time I actually saw you in person. Um, I mean, and now I'm 41. You're, you're slightly older than that. I mean, we were children. And and yeah. you were in charge of like this this huge corporation. And I, I've got to ask, like, was was there fear involved back then? Did you know enough to be afraid? You know, there was, it, there's definitely, there's, whenever you open a place, there's always fear because you're always afraid that people won't like it, right? Especially early on, um, you know, when we opened a nightclub and, you know, I was 26 years old and we, we hired some folks, some of the people I knew for a while, but some of the people were new and, you know, you wait for people to come, you know, and, and if people don't come, it's, it's a very public, right? It's a very public way of, of saying, hey, we don't like your product, or if they come, don't come back. So there was a constant level of, of fear. Uh, and I'd probably say fear or ambition to make sure that we were constantly doing something that hadn't been done before. Um, now, mind you, everything we did wasn't something that was groundbreaking, but the idea was groundbreaking of having so many different um, venues, you kind of control the market, then you could control your promoters, you could control the DJs. And it was constant fair. I remember, I remember we're building the SLS in Beverly Hills. It was a you know, big hotel, you know, 300 rooms. And, and we were doing something completely on the other side of town. I mean, it was next to a body shop and a used car lot. And, um, and it was, a, it was a, it was a bankrupt Meridian, you know, Meridian hotel that, you know, it's a kind of 1980s typical atrium. But honestly, there was so much confidence in the people I was working with, you know, Philippe Stark. And then we identified this little regional chef from DC, got this crazy, this crazy um, um, uh, culinarian and this crazy person. I mean, just in a great way, Jose Andres. And we brought in Murray Moss from New York to do our retail. And we, we created this fantasy land. And some of it is imagination and ambition. Some of it is also understanding the opportunity. Because I lived the space, especially here in LA, and I knew that there was a, a real gap between the Four Seasons and the Beverly Wilshire and you know the, the the Peninsula, and then a full gap down to companies that we ended up buying, like Mondrian and some of the boutique hotels that I was a part of mm -hmm. early on. I really felt that, that that lifestyle space, which is I think the, the space that we helped create, the luxury lifestyle space, was wide open, and we spent a tremendous amount of time proving it to ourselves and. But listen, you know, you open up, I opened up the hotel, our first real branded SBE hotel in January 1, 2009. 
and it was a you know the worst possible time you could open up anything. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the, the the face of the the, the Great Recession, and and you know, people weren't traveling, and blah blah blah. But you know, pro, you know, good quality ultimately um, sustained. I mean, the bazaar was I think one of the best restaurants in the world that year. Um, it was something that had never been done. Um, and uh, but there's constant fear. I mean, if you don't fear, that means you're kind of taking your foot off the gas. And uh, if you're too comfortable, then generally somebody's going to come behind you that's, you know, much more eager and uh, and do a better job. Your dad was successful in his own right, and and an overall brilliant guy. Was he a resource for you? Did you go to him for advice? You know, my dad has an amazing story. He's almost 80, almost ninety now, but you know, his background was you know something that I always grew up. Uh, he had me when he was forty five, so I was the youngest of four kids. And, you know, but his background always would resonate with all of us, especially with me. You know, he was born in the ghettos of Iran, as many you know Jews were back in the, in the late 1920s. He didn't have, you know, my grandfather died when he was two. It was just him and his brother selling light bulbs and cigarettes in the streets. You know, that kind of constant stories that says that, listen, you can go from that to being a very big part of the Iranian uh, evolution in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And then the revolution happened, right? So, I mean, you know, like so many other Iranians or other people around the world that go through huge turmoil, you know, the idea is that don't ever get too comfortable because one th- because it can be taken away from you at any moment. And always have your reputation, your name is your only currency. And that's kind of what I would hear always growing up at the, at the, at the breakfast table and the dining room table is that your name is your currency and you know, the fact that they you know, had to flee Iran, come here, lived, you know, we lived in a little motel or kind of a hotel right on Comstock for you know, six months before we assimilated into kind of uh, kind of the American, uh, you know, community here in the LA community, which really embraced us and a lot of Iranians, um, some some willingly, some reluctantly. But the 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 point was that, that was, those were the things, you know, it, his, his stories constantly, um, reaffirm, you know, the things that I try to emulate, whether it's giving back, whether it's being part of the community, whether it's being part of the local political aspects of making sure that, you know, you're, you're not, you're doing whatever you can to, you know, have the wind at your back. Um, you know, you know, philanthropy was a big part, even when we didn't have a lot of money coming here, it was a huge part of him and my uncle's DNA. Um, and so those are the things that really helped me guide myself, working with people, never wanting to embarrass him or the family with the things I did or the people I associated with. And, and I, he was not happy that I was in the nightclub business. Um, <laughs> he, he was, you know, he was not happy, you know, me kind of, you know, saying at one point, listen, you know, we, we're, we're backing a lot of people in real estate and developers and operators. Well, why don't we back ourselves? And why don't we be the operator? And you know, that's just something that, um, you know, he obviously, you know, didn't, he didn't want us all to work as hard as he had and kind of be in the grind, but he, that was 24, 25 and made a lot of money, uh, at that point. And, uh, he, uh, he, he kind of, you know, accepted it. And then obviously the, the success took off very fast after that. So I think the rest of that was, was, was something he was proud of. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because you have a tendency to fix problems that people haven't perceived yet. Like you see holes in the market that, that before it's widely accepted that they exist. I think that's one of like the foundational elements of SBE. 
And I've been on this show proclaiming for months that the industry is broken. It's broken foundationally and we need to work to fix it. I felt it three months ago. I felt it three years ago. And you had to have the same feeling because C3 is just a very different concept than anything that's out there. Can you talk about what it is and what the inspiration for was? Sure, sure. I mean, you know, you know, we had gotten up to, um, you know, after we moved out of LA, well, we didn't move out, but as we expanded, you know, to Miami and Las Vegas and New York and then London, and then I bought my biggest competitor in, in 2016. And then we started really reaching for what we like to call in the hotel businesses, the asset light model, meaning we were, you know, we were putting our brands, SLS, you know, Mondrian and Delano and all these, we we're putting those brands on uh, other people's buildings and, you know, generating, you know, long-term management agreements and putting our restaurants in there. And that was really the model that we, we, we grew up to 40 hotels um, as, uh, as early as uh, June of this year. And what I saw there was, you know, we were up to 200 bars and restaurants within either standalone or with the, within the hotel. But I, I really saw about, I'd say early part of 2019, I saw a natural pivot happening. I saw the disruption we were a little bit immune on the restaurant space of the disruption of what we call the Amazon effect. Um, retail had gone through it. Um, obviously, I mean, every aspect of the world or, or, or business had gone through the Amazon effect, the direct to consumer delivery, so forth and so on. Um, the hotel business had gone through it with you know, things like Airbnb and, and Travelocity and Expedia and all these third party um, reservation, online, you know, online travel agents, they call them OTAs. But the restaurant business hadn't really gone through that um, real disruption. And early in 2019, we started seeing, you know, the apps that we were working with, like Postmates and Grubhub and, and things like that were starting to really grow. And they're starting to become a meaningful part of our, our restaurant business, you know, meaningful 10, 15%. And, you know, I started tracking it with our restaurant team. And I said, guys, you know, this is something we should start paying attention to because, for us, it was a nice to have, you know, umami burger, you know, you know, some, some cases up to 2019, 30%, 40% of our, our uh, revenue was going to delivery. But I said, there's a fundamental change here. There's a consumer behavioral change. I said, people now, because of the onset of Uber and now Uber Eats and the drivers and so forth and so on, people are now feeling more comfortable and actually demanding, especially millennials and that kind of generation. They don't want to go out to restaurants anymore. They want... You know, they'll go to the bar, they'll go to the nightclub, but they want to order and they want to order often. And, you know, so when, once we started digging into that, I started seeing that that world is so convoluted. I mean, in 2019, $40 billion, depending on which numbers you, you look at, $40 billion in the U.S. alone was going through these delivery apps, right? $40 billion of a $1 trillion food business. Okay, you know, not a huge number, but it was up from 26 billion a year before. And you know, this year without COVID, it was it was budgeted, it was projected to do you know 50 billion. And now it's probably gonna do 80 or 90 billion. So I sat with the team, I said, guys, you know, right now the 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 restaurants are getting more difficult to open, labor laws are more difficult, construction is getting more expensive, landlords are this is again you know going up up into COVID. Landlords are a lot more demanding, personal guarantees, corporate guarantees, this, that, 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 that. I said the model is broken, and you know, and we should really start thinking about creating a platform that focuses around intellectual property and brands, like we did in the hotel space, 
and in the, in the full service restaurant space around fast casual and QSR. And let's start thinking about this where right now, if you go to a mall, this is 2019, you know, malls are dead, right? Because people are ordering yeah. on out, you know? I said, you know, malls are dead, malls are dying, unless they're really experiential malls. I said, you know, people are getting comfortable in ordering and having food come to the house, but there really isn't a solution around that. So we, we, you know, obviously there are one-off brands, you know, Chipotle does a great job, and you know, all the brands that we all like, Shake Shack and Sweet Greens and so on and so on. But no one has looked at this as holistically as an ecosystem. And guys, by the way, I was telling my team, we have access and we work with some of the best chefs in the world. Right. And, you know, I started talking to, you know, chefs that we have worked with, and chefs that we want to work with and we're, we're continuing to work with. And that was really kind of what C3, the inception of C3 was, is creating the opportunity of unlocking the real estate, the value of, of real estate that is completely obsolete, kitchens and hotels, you know, spaces and malls, you know, restaurants that, you know, even before COVID that were not going to make it, but had good infrastructure, good kitchens. And how do you get great food into these communities fast and with accountability, you know, with, you know, with a pre-design packaging? And how do you ultimately let somebody order from up to 15 different brands with one purchase, which you can't do today, you know? Um, and that was kind of, I, you know, I had my kind of daytime business and I had my nighttime business and my nighttime business, I was just educating myself what's out there. You know, we're dealing with Travis and, you know, what he was doing with Cloud Kitchen with the you know, former founder of Uber. And we're dealing with this company called Kitchen United that was coming up with a real estate solution to some of these things. But no one was getting around the actual intellectual property because as I, I agree with you, is if 50% of your revenue is coming from delivery, you're never going to make money as a full right. service restaurant. And if you're paying 30% commissions, right, to the to the Postmates and Grubhubs of the world, you're never going to make money on delivery. Sure. And, and so that's really what, what the kind of the idea of C3 was middle of last year. And it, it comes back to your point about the disruption of the business. You know, it is so heartbreaking to see what's happening. It's so heartbreaking to see people just giving up. It's heartbreaking to see people not being able to pivot and 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 understand the new reality of what's what's going to happen now I, I equate what's happened now in the food business because of the quarantines and lockdowns as an acceleration of what was going to happen four or five years from now it was going to happen mm -hmm. anyway you know um, qr codes in restaurants you know it was going to happen anyway right because oh, labor yeah. is getting so expensive right all these things were going to happen but you know who's going to be able to fight you know the fight and get through it and you know, we feel that there will be a huge demand still for full service restaurants coming out of this. We still, I mean, if there wasn't a lockdown here in LA, all my restaurants will be full. My nightclubs would be full. Right. The demand is there. You just can't open them. But, you know, what has happened subsequently, um, you know, because of these lockdowns and, you know, the, the social unrest and all these other things that have caused people to fundamentally shift, you know, uh, population. I mean, New York, which we have a big footprint in, it's going to take a long time for those people to come back to the offices, uh, to even want to come back to the offices. So yeah. that's shifted. You look at Chicago, you look at San Francisco, you look at Oakland, Seattle, LA, Miami, Dallas. I mean, these markets that, you know, drive a lot of their revenue based off of corporate business, you know, uh, business dinners, you know, lunches, you know, catering and so forth and so on. So, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, when, when COVID hit, we looked pretty smart that we had thought about this. And I think we're three or four years ahead of anybody who's thinking about the idea now. Um, but, you know, it's scary to think of what's going to happen to the standalone 
you know, local, I, I, I call them mom and pop, but, you know, some of the best restaurants are mom and pop. And, and you know, what, what options are going to be there for people who want, you know, you look at downtown LA right now, you look at Hollywood, it's dead. Oh, yeah. It's, 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 it's decimated, right? Uh, and you look at some markets that you, you would think were kind of booming, like Hudson Yards or some of these other markets around New York City, San Francisco. So it, it's a, it's, it's a, a, a reality that, that everyone is facing, how we pivot from it, how we address it is, and embrace the realities of consumer behavior is really what's going to differentiate the people that win or lose in the next round. Yeah, and, and I can appreciate the strategy and I can appreciate the optimism because we hear a lot of that on the show, but very few people are putting their money where their mouth is. You have a 40,000 square foot eatery opening, slated to open in Manhattan at the end of this year. You also have two restaurants with Danny Garcia that are supposed to open at the end of this year as well. That requires balls man like that's that that is an unwavering confidence a belief in a positive future and world-class strategy can you walk me through that the you know the concept of execution in light of a pandemic sure listen you know obviously from my perspective you know having done this now for you know close to 20 years we we bet on two things when, when we do put our money where our mouth is one is a, a, a partner and in that case, you know, in this case that we're talking about in Manhattan West, you know, Brookfield is one of the largest, you know, landlords in the world. And they've been exceptional. And their their track record of building these campuses are second to none. What we liked about that particular location is, you know, Hudson Yards, Manhattan West, which is Manhattan West is eight million square feet across the street from Hudson Yards, which is 20 million square feet. The density that 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 this location has, I mean, we have just to give you what got me excited is, you know, we're right under Amazon's, you know, office, a New York office with 2 million square feet. Right under under them is JP Morgan, another 2 million square feet. You have the global headquarters of Peloton, just moved there. The global headquarters of the NHL, just moved there. You have two buildings that are fully leased out by the biggest law firms in, in uh, New York City. So from, from a perspective of density, and then you have another 30 million square feet around you. You have Mad Square Garden across the street. Facebook during COVID just announced they're taking about close to a million square feet literally across the street from us. So from my perspective, New York City isn't, isn't going away. It's just going to take longer to come back. And when you look at kind of the center of density, and, and we have an office in Soho, and when you look at the center of density of New York City, it has really gone into this Hudson Yards area, right? It's 33rd and 10th. The restaurant, well, I'd be more concerned is if we were open a year ago, um, you know, and there's a lot, some great restaurants, Thomas Keller, some of these guys that have shut down across the street and some more will shut down. But, you know, what we designed as this food hall of the future is exactly, I always called it recession proof because we have, you know, within our food hall, you know, and we, we really looked at Italy a lot when, when we created our brand citizen for, and we have now, by the way, that's one food hall. We have, we're about to announce four more. <laughs> so, so talk, talk, and we're, 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 the goal is to get to 10 citizens by 2025 uh, and we've identified five this being the first one um, the idea of the food hall is i believe this is the way people want to eat i look at a food hall as an as you know almost like a lobby of a hotel that cannot be designed as lunch only or dinner only or monday through friday only or weekend only it's got to evolve 
Um, and, you know, we've partnered with David Rockwell, one of the best designers in the world and a great friend who's in a lot of our projects. And I think when you're talking about 13 QSR outlets, you know, quick service outlets within this food hall, all by James Beard or Michelin chefs, brands that we own and control. When you're talking about introducing a guy like Danny Garcia, one of the best chefs I think in the world today, he just got a three star in Marbella and connecting his fast food with his full service. Obviously bringing the first Katsuya to um, New York City with a crispy rice, which is a lightning in a bottle brand that we created. And then being underneath or around 40 million square feet of office and residential, I'll take that bet. You know, I'll take that bet all day because whether it's going to come out in, you know, whether we stabilize, it takes us another year to ramp up, then so be it. But, you know, it's a 20-year play for us, right? And I think, more importantly, the product is not like next door at Hudson Yards where everything was super high-end. Everything was, you know, check averages. Not everything, but, you know, the majority of the stuff with Milos and, the, the, the talk room and this and all this other stuff, you know, cr- you know, end of the day with C3 is, which citizen falls, you know, under the C3 umbrella is value proposition. It's loyalty. It's tying in these brands that they're, they're seeing for the first time and then going home and ordering from ghost kitchens in New York city, which we have, it's kind of this full approach of the intellectual property um, around these in, in, individual chefs and brands. And for us, that's really what I think is the future of the four wall is experiences. And I look at theaters, right? I mean, unless you have a real reason to go to a movie theater, whether it's like a, you know, you take your, like my daughter to a Disney tent pole film or, mm-hmm. but Netflix, Netflix has kind of killed, you know, the, you know, the husband and wife going on a Tuesday night, you know, date night to a movie theater, right? You just watch oh, Netflix yeah. at home. And, and so we looked at C3 a lot like Netflix meets Amazon because Netflix is content creation. Right, they're they're mainly con- and they're mainly pushing their own content. You know, stuff they're right. they're creating shows like in Siberia for like a third, uh, twenty cents on the dollar, but they're putting it within their distribution, their carousels, their marketing. Then they carry other people's movies, content, TV shows as well. But if you look at their carousel, it's really Netflix, 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 and then you know something made by Disney. You know, so the same way we're looking at C three is. We want to be the we want to be in the content business. We want to be in the brand business. We want to be able to unlock um, spaces that generally would be dead in malls. That's why we partnered with David Simon, the large. So the partners, the three partners we have in C three, um, and two of two of the three were partners before COVID, was Accor Hotels, um, which is our, our partner on the hotel side, um, and there are the five thousand hotels around the world. Which for us, we think this solution for C three revolutionizes in-room dining and kitchens that are dead in hotels, four-star, three-star resorts, urban. Um, and we, we, we were about to up to 250 hotels now that we're basically taking over their in-room dining and their kitchens and creating five to 10 brands that, that you can now utilize, not just for the hotel room, but banquets and catering when that world comes back, but also utilizing these kitchens and hotels to service a 30-minute community. Mm-hmm. Right? We call it the 30-minute community. Simon Property, the largest landlord in the country, David Simon, who's the chairman and CEO, he invested in C3 in December of last year with the same idea that we are going to take these food halls and look at his malls from a, and that's why he's so smart. He partners with little guys like us, but that can come and look at a beautiful mall in Atlanta or in Dallas or in LA or in Chicago with a completely different lens, not the traditional landlord tenant relationship, but how can we take a second story empty, you know, space that'll never get leased up because Macy's went out of business or Neiman right. Markets and create 
a food hall with a ghost kitchen, with entertainment, with a killer bar, you know, and, and that's really kind of what gets us excited around around that opportunity. So we partnered with him and he, he's a he's a he's a substantial investor in C3. And then we just recently are about to announce a large investment from a sovereign fund from Saudi Arabia, where we're going to relook at kind of, you know, the, the, the whole Gulf area, which I've done a lot of stuff on the hotel side. And be able to now take translate these 15 brands of ours and know-how into markets like Saudi, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Kuwait, Bahrain, and then ultimately very quickly into Russia. So you know we're 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 really looking. We already have the footprint and the, the strategic partners to be able to make this you know a very very big expression of all these ideas. And then ultimately the technology is what's going to bring it all together. So we have an app that we're launching in less than 60 days that will allow you as a consumer to order at any time as many brands as you want through one purchase. And I think that's going to be the real differentiator for us. Um, so we don't have to just rely on Postmates or Grubhub. And, and even though we have national account deals with them, with having consumers come to me and saying, okay, I want to order Sam's Crispy, Umami, Planation, Ella mm-hmm. Mia, I want to order La Gente Tacos, Minuk by Danny Garcia. You know, one of our chefs is a guy named Dario Cicchini. You know, he's an eighth generation butcher from Panzano. You may have seen him on Netflix, the most famous butcher in the world. You know, he's doing our pizza, pasta, and sandwich Italian concept that we launched. You know, so we're bringing Morimoto, right? We've announced working with him, you know, one of the best chefs in the world in Japanese and also Pan-Asian. We've created a concept with him that's around the Pan-Asian side. And, you know, it becomes exciting to these developers, these hotel owners, the communities that we're in to say, listen, we're bringing some of the best chefs in the world and you can actually afford them. You don't have to go to, you know, you don't have to go to Marbella and go to a three-star Michelin restaurant to see Danny Garcia. You can get him for $14, you know, in a beautiful bowl that he's curated with his technology and his vision. So we're, we're really proud and excited about that as well. You're democratizing luxury, which I think is fabulous. I mean, and by the way, the chefs, you would think, and some of you know, these the partners we're working with um, and these culinary guys, you would think they'd be scared of that. But they, they understand, too, that this is the future. They understand that, you know, and you know, because you, you have some of the best restaurants in L.A. and you know how expensive it is to run on those brand standards, you know, and and end of the day, if you can feed the masses with the same idea. I mean, Danny Meyer did it with Shake Shack, right? I mean, he did a great job in taking his brand and his idea and his, and his and his perspective and created a great burger concept right and he held very strongly to that brand and that quality and a lot of chefs look at that a lot of restaurateurs look at that. a lot of them have tried to emulate that as well and myself included them, right so so how do you so and i think that's going to be that's going to be the run that's going to be the next 15 you know 15 year run is how can you get i mean you look at a brand like sweet green you know got valued before um before COVID at 1.7 billion. And I know those guys super well and I'm big fans of theirs. And, you, know, I, you know, it's a salad, right? I mean, there's mm-hmm. chopped, there's sweet green, there's tender green, there's mama green, papa green, all these greens. How did they become so successful? And, and you know, the outposts that they did, the technology that they did, the loyalty, the, you know, the ambition and the, and the drive. Um, so that's gonna, be, that's gonna be kind of interesting to see how the next, you know, next round happens. And um, it's a fun business because I'm back creating brands again. I'm back you mm-hmm. know, on the creativity. Um, I'm doing things that generally have not been done. I'm, I'm learning every day, um, seeing what's there. I'm, 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 I'm trying to emulate what we did on the full service and the hospitality side. And 
it's a fun it's a fun business to be in right now. Do you ever look internally? Do you, I, I know you look at other brands, and I've done the same thing myself. And you know, you try and figure out, distill out what made them successful. But do you look internally and, and say, try and analyze what made you successful? And if so, like what are, what are those qualities? For me personally, I would say my superpower is that I am optimistic to the point of retardation, right? right, right. I, I can look into the abyss and be like, man, it's fine. I can swim this. But what is it, what is it for you? Honestly, I think it goes back to um, when I started, you know, SBE was appreciating what wasn't there um, in, in the sense of, you know, the city of LA, the landscape or, or in the hospitality space. When we, when we, when we started growing SLS, you know, people would have said, okay, just focus on SLS. But then I realized, you know what, we need scale. We need, we need, you know, there was a, you know, the big thing about the hotel business is, and I've studied, you know, the Schragers, the Salt, you know, the the, the guys from you know, Kersner International, a lot of these unbelievable guys, even Izzy Sharp at Four Seasons, you know, you have to know when to get out, right? Because ultimately, you know, scale is the only way you're going to be able to monetize. Um, and I've seen a lot of my friends who are in the hotel business um, who just could not get out of their own way. And ultimately, you know, they hit a recession or they hit an issue and, and, and they were gobbled up, you know. So I think for me, you know, the the thing that I like to think that I'm good at, which there are many things, but this is is just seeing around a corner. And listen, that that comes with a lot of scars, right? Um, but seeing around the corner and saying, you know what, I I my instincts tell me this is changing. You know, most people would say, you know, let's just continue doing kind of what we're doing. But I'm just I was it literally was was an overnight curiosity for me. Of why is this thing, you know, it's so small in our in our revenue model of the overall company, but it's growing at such a percentage of delivery of you know consumer behavior. If if we don't focus on it, we could be left high and dry. And this is well before COVID. This is you know close to 19, 19 months ago. And and that is the only thing. And having you know, having the blessings of having people leave great organizations that come join ideas like that. And to me, you're 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 nowhere if you can't get people excited about your vision and then ultimately support them in what they want to do when they come join you. So the people, the culture that we try to instill here in the different businesses that we have, we always tell people, listen, you've done this for other people for the last X amount of years. This is going to be your last job. You're going to come here. We're going to give you the tools to be uh, supportive, uh, to be uh, successful. And you go and you run and make mistakes, run, run as fast as you can, because end of the day, somebody else will catch up and, and we have to be the first mover. And so th- those are kind of the two, the two things. I'd say trying to, you know, as we did in the lifestyle space when lifestyle wasn't a word in 2003 and the full integration of that, of uh, the experience of all the different verticals that we talked about. And also trying to see around the corners how consumer behavior has changed and then put the same amount of power that we've put into a bazaar and the same amount of energy that we've created that brand, the years that it took to create brands like SLS, Take that same thinking and put it into a fast casual brand, you right. know, like crispy rice now, which is like, you know, I mean, we have just to give you an idea, you know, we opened crispy rice, the first one in a virtual kitchen, April 7th of 2020, right? So couple, like five months ago, we have 42 of them now open. Um, oh and God. the scale, the scale of it, um, and, you know, is, is of the virtual side, the digital side is unbelievable if you get it right. And not all of our brands will be umamis and Sam's Crispy and Crispy Rices 
you know, and that's fine. They're not all intended to be, but when, when a brand like that does come along, you know, you gotta, you gotta start feeding the, the machine fast because you can get to, I mean, you can, we, we, we're, we're budgeted. I mean, we're slated right now to do a hundred crispy rices by the end of this year and 300 by the end of next year. If you think about that, I mean, how many restaurant companies do we know that have three? I mean, I think Shake Shack just hit 300, right? And God bless them. But it took them, I think, what, it's the first one opened, I think, in 2004 or five. Yeah. So I think I think it's interesting to, to, this, to this world. When you do have an amazing idea, you can scale it super fast in, in, in this model. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Uh, these are people just like you, industry professionals. Do you have any words of advice or encouragement? Uh, you know, I think as far as the encouragement or advice, I just go back to the things. When I, when, I, when I failed at something, which is quite often, it was something that I wasn't passionate about or it was something that I didn't put my heart into it or it was something that I didn't educate myself about. And there's been some, you know, going into new markets, um, overextending into, you know, international markets. Things that took me a while to do um, that if I really had put the same amount of energy and focus in the things I was passionate about, I would have been successful. I think that's probably the biggest thing right now. I think, unfortunately, a lot of people are treading water. They're waiting for the next PPP loan. They're waiting for definitions of kind of the, this, you know, the, the, the new package that's coming, if it comes and all that. And it sucks. And trust me, we still have the full service side and I'm with you on that. I think that the thing is, is you have to always try to re, reimagine what you do. And whether it's, you know, a full service person saying, you know what, how do I make this kitchen much more efficient? How do I create a couple of virtual brands? How do I partner with somebody? How do I get to scale where I can monetize the business? Where is the value in the business for somebody else to come by into the day? How can I, you know, all these, you know, I know a lot of chefs that for 20 years, they have, you know, 30 different management contracts, but when they come to sell or they come to monetize, there's nothing to sell. Right. right. And a lot of it is around the, the thing I've always focused on, which is the brand and the IP. You know, when you, when, when you go to one of our restaurants, it's not about who the chef is. It's about, you know, SBE and that brand. And that ultimately has helped us be able to not be inundated by or hamstrung by, you know, and you've heard the stories of the chefs with the operators, they fight, the place shuts down. And so I think the brand is, is really the piece of this that I think always wins. That's Sam Nazarian. For more on SBE and their upcoming projects, go to sbe.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, check out our video content or read our weekly blog, go to joshkopel.com. That's J-O-S-H-K-O-P-E-L.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.